I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but have you ever felt like you were being punished for doing the right thing? Uh, you know, and you, you kind of get to this sense of peace of, I know I'm doing the right thing, but then there's this regret of, I don't know why I did the right thing. I should have done the easy thing because everything that's going along with doing the right thing is so hard and it's such a mess. Uh, when my grandpa Bliss passed away, it's been about 13 years now, we knew we had to do something with my grandma because she had dementia and couldn't take care of herself. And so we knew we had to do something with her. And we, the right thing was kind of obvious to all of us. We all knew um, probably the best thing for her would be for her to move in with my mom and dad. My mom and dad lived like one mile from where my grandma had spent the last 50 years of her life. So uh, that was, you know, it was familiar territory. She still recognized most of us. Uh, she might not be able to tell you our names, but she at least recognized and found comfort when she got confused and disoriented. And she would regularly forget that my grandpa had even passed away, and she was always asking for him. And so having us there was, it was a good idea, and we knew that. But it was right about the time I was going off to school. And my dad worked out of the house every day, and my mom had a nail salon that she ran out of our home, and so we knew if, if my grandma moves in, my mom's going to kind of be the primary care provider. And I don't know if you've ever been around someone that has uh, dementia, but it can be difficult, and, they, and there are some strange things that they do. Um, for one, my grandma would constantly get up and walk over to my mom in this nail salon. She'd walk by all the customers and stand like this far away from my mom and just stare at her. And my mom's like, yeah, and my grandma's like, what's going on? Where are we? And my mom would have to tell her. And so my mom was trying to work, and my grandma just was always doing that, you know, six times a day or whatever. And um, my grandma would steal stuff, which was interesting because it was always, it wasn't anything worth it, you know. We'd find a, like, hoard of candy wrappers or something, like, in her underwear drawer or something when my mom's going to do laundry. Um, probably the funniest thing that ever happened was, you know, uh, it was Christmas time, and you know those ornaments, they're like a cookie, they're made out of some kind of dough, and you bake them. Uh, well, we had one of those that somebody gave us, and it was shrink-wrapped and hanging on the tree. She ate it, like, but plastic-wrapped and all, like, just took it off and ate the thing, and we just, we only, only reason we knew is because we found the ribbon, and she had crumbs on her shirt, and we're like, where's the wrapper, and it wasn't where she stashed stuff, so we're like, oh no, uh, it, she was fine, Th that didn't do any problem. Um, but the most, probably the most trying thing that happened was um, there was a certain stage where my grandma kind of got mean. And my grandma was, she could be firm and she could be tough, but she was generally a sweet lady. And um, I remember the one time that I ever heard my grandma curse. Uh, she never cursed. And so that one time it stuck out to me. Uh, but at this one particular time, my grandma I don't know what she was thinking, but she got so mad at my mom, she stormed out of the house, walked down the hill to this gas station that was right next to my mom and dad's, and starts screaming for help from this lady that's holding her captive. And starts, I mean, she is cussing my mom up one side and down the other like she was a professional sailor, and she was just cussing like we've never heard anybody cuss before. And she was just saying this, that, and my mom's trying to explain to everybody, I'm not kidnapping her, please don't call the cops, I'm so sorry, Lona, let's go. And, and, and my mom gets up, and I know there were days where she had to think, I thought this was the right thing, why does it have to be so hard? Why does it have to be so difficult? Well, as we wrap up this series called Stretch Marks today, I kind of want to talk about that aspect of pain in life. And pain that comes not just while you're doing the right thing, but pain that sometimes comes because you are doing the right thing. And I do want to shift 
from talking generally about the right thing, because the right thing can be all kinds of stuff, even little tiny stuff. I mean, you could be going out to drag your uh, garbage cans back up the driveway and see that your neighbors have blown out in the road. Well, the right thing is to pick up your neighbor's garbage cans, okay? I want to shift from talking about the right thing to talking about actually being obedient to God, doing those things you know specifically God wants you to do, and maybe, or, or, or taking kind of an adventure in life that you know God wants you to take, or walking a road in life that God wants you to take. And how do you understand that in your brain when you walk a road of obedience, and yet it's still so hard? Why would God cause there to be so much pain in a road that he wants you to walk down? And so we're going to kind of navigate that today. And the story we're going to look at is in Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, if you brought a Bible, great. If you didn't, there's a black one near you, or the verses will be on the screen. Um, and we're looking at a guy named Paul, if you're unfamiliar with a the book of Acts. Um, excuse me. <coughs> there we go. Um, the book of Acts, at this point in time, we're following a guy named Paul who was an apostle of Jesus. And Paul had been kind of specifically called to travel around the Roman world, walking all over the place, sharing the gospel basically with, to anyone he came across. And he would plant churches all over the Roman world. And at this point in time, he's traveling with a guy named Silas and some other people. But all you got to know for today is Paul and Silas, okay? And if you're like me, when you read some of these verses in the Bible, whether it's Jesus who's traveling or Paul who's traveling or anybody, it, I mean, they might, they, they, you don't know the landmarks, okay? And so it sounds like, you know, how he's going to here and there, and you have trouble kind of tracking the travel language because we don't know. It's not like it's, oh, Jesus went to New Berlin, then to Alexander, then over down to Franklin and to Waverly and back to Loami. Most of us could track that little journey that I just mentioned there because we know the towns. But you get into Bible towns and these regions that don't exist anymore, and it gets a little confusing, okay? So I'm going to read this little passage, Acts chapter six, or 16, excuse me. We'll start at verse 6, and then I'm going to put a map up just so that we can understand what chunk of the world this is happening in, just to make it a little bit easier for us. So let's go to Acts chapter 6, 16, good gravy, Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 6. It says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, see, you know right where those are, don't you, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. So Paul tried to go into this area they called Asia, Holy Spirit wouldn't allow it. And when they came to the border of Mysia, Excuse me. Boop. There we go. They tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So, here's our little map. Most of this little journey takes place in modern-day Turkey, okay? And it said Paul wanted to go into Asia, but the Spirit wouldn't let him. Asia's not the Asia that we know, okay? Asia that they called was that little green region right there. And then he tried to go into Mysia. That was that little orange region right there. They tried to go in there, and the Holy Spirit said no. And then Paul has this vision, and they kind of decide, okay, God didn't want us to go to these two places because God is calling us over to Macedonia, which is the purple area there on the map. And so they go, and they end up in a town uh, called Philippi. That's where the star is, okay? So, by the way, here's Italy. 
So, you know, Europe's here-ish, so you know just about where in the world that is. And the reason I wanted to do that is because I think so often when you read all these towns, we don't know where they are, and it might as well say that, you know, Paul went to Neverland, and then he took a left at Wonderland, and he ran into Alice and the rabbit, and all, you know. And so I think it's helpful to know that these are real places, real events, real people, real times, okay? So we go on. Paul's in Philippi. We'll jump down to verse 16. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling, and she followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. Now, you'd think that might be a good thing, okay? She had some spirit that enabled her to tell the future, whatever that means, okay? And so... People in the area knew that her little predictions and discernments were trustworthy, and they were willing to pay money to get her opinion. And so she's following Paul, this guy that nobody's heard of, and she's got some credibility, and she's saying, hey, these guys, if you want to know the way to heaven, it's Paul and Silas right here. Listen to these guys. So you would think Paul would enjoy the PR. You would think Paul would appreciate the little boost this little girl was giving him from the spirit that was in her. But it says, it goes on. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. And at once, the spirit left her. Now, I think that's hilarious. And if you don't, you missed it. And, okay, here's the deal. So she's saying something that isn't wrong. These guys are the way to salvation. But it says she said it over and over and over and over and over and over again for many, many days. And if you've ever been around small children, you know that they say the same things over and over and over again. And there's that point where even if they're saying something nice and kind and sweet, you just reach that breaking point and you just can't take it anymore. The other night, um, Abby was reading a book. And if you know anything about my sweet wife, is that when she reads a book that she really likes, the world disappears. She doesn't hear anything. She doesn't see anything. She doesn't know who's there. I think we could have like a marching band like walk through our living room and she would have no idea. And so she's reading this book that she's really into and we're sitting there and I'm on the couch and Jude's on the floor playing with toys and he just looks up and he goes, Mommy, I love you. And I go, oh my gosh, that's so sweet. Oh, and my heart's melting and I'm like, that kid, man, we we done something right, you know, and you start crying, you know, you get all teary, and you, your heart's melting, and, and, he, and I look over at her, and she's just, you know, <laughs> doesn't even acknowledge that he said anything, and I'm like, come on, lady, this is sweet, you know, and so, and so he looks up and sees that she did not see him or hear him, and so he says it again, mommy, I love you, and he proceeds to say it like 15 more times, and I hear it every time, and I'm sitting there, and finally I'm just like, Abigail, and she just goes, what? Like, and she's like, it's like totally new. What? What's going on? And I was like, look at your son. He's trying to be sweet. Pay attention. And I can't take it anymore, you know. <laughs> and so finally, he says, I love you, you know. And we move on. But, but like, if you like, that helps me understand this little spot. It's not that she was saying really anything terrible or bad. It's just that she was saying it over and over again. And I think it's so funny because you don't get this a lot in the New Testament where it just says somebody got annoyed and they just couldn't take it anymore and kind of blew up a little bit. That makes me feel better as a human, as a dad, all around because of this little bit that Paul had in the story. And so Paul casts out this demon. 
that people had been willing to pay to get her opinion. So that's where things kind of get a little bit rocky in the story. Verse 19. It says, when their owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and they are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped, that would have been naked, stripped naked and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. And so I just want you to think, okay, the only reason Paul is in this situation is because he did not go where God told him not to go. And he went exactly where God told him to go. And he is doing exactly what God told him to do. He is preaching the gospel where God told him to go. And all of this stuff just starts to unravel. And because he's obeying God, he ends up getting annoyed to the breaking point. He ends up getting beaten severely, it says. Now, uh, one thing that's kind of interesting to know is in Jewish law, they had a certain number of hits they could give you and then they had to stop. The Romans had no such number. And so for the, the magistrates who were sitting there ordering him to be beaten and him and Silas to be beaten, basically the guy with the stick, he just kept whacking until the magistrate finally said, all right, that's enough. And so they were beaten, it says, severely. We don't know how many times they were hit. Their backs would have been whelped, maybe split, swollen, bleeding, anything. It would have been a bad deal. It would have been painful in the moment, and it would have been, they would have been very, very sore in the days following and so because of that he gets annoyed stripped naked which is always humiliating if you've ever had that uh, dream of going to school naked everybody's had that one I think um, it's not something you want to be naked in front of a room full of strangers they get beaten on top of that and then they get thrown in jail and with their feet locked in the stocks and depending on how these ancient stocks were um, laid out it could be very uncomfortable they could have your legs buckled at a, a very weird angle and make it very uncomfortable to sit in. And so here he is in jail in this worst, horrible spot, all because he did exactly what God told him to do. And it makes no sense to most of us when we think, why would obeying God lead to pain? Why would obeying God lead to trouble, lead to, to directly to us in, ending up in a situation that hurts so, so much? But, you know, I've seen a lot of situations where someone trying to be obedient to God actually led to hurt. I've seen it a lot of times in marriage. Um, I've known mar a lot of marriages where um, one of the spouses was a Christian and one was not. And the Christian trying to be obedient to God caused a lot of problems in their marriage. Uh, one that really is just practically speaking is when the Christian decides, you know what, I think I need to honor God and give to the church. You try to explain to your non-Christian spouse that you want to take perfectly good money and give it away to a church that you think doesn't serve any purpose, a church that you think probably is just a big worship, they just worship fairy tales and believe a bunch of nonsense, that can cause some problems. You're not going to take my hard-earned money and give it away to a church, but I feel like I need to, I need to be obedient, and it can cause a lot of problems that way. I've seen spouses who were a little more contentious towards Christianity and end up mocking their husband or their wife who follows Jesus, and it just, it creates this great, great tension in marriage, and, and they're mocking this person who they promised to spend 
life till death to us part together. And when someone tells me this, by the way, I think, you better stop that. Like, Christian or not, they might make that till death part happen a little sooner if you don't shut your mouth and stop mocking them every single day. But I've seen it over and over again. I've known people who lost friends when they became a Christian. I, lo- I, I lost a lot of friends when I became a Christian because they just kind of said, oh, you're, you're that now. I, don't, I, know what, I know what's going to happen. I know how you're going to act, and no, no thank you. And I end up losing a lot of friends. My whole social kind of circle changed when I became a follower of Jesus. A few weeks ago, actually, I had someone who I've known around here for a while, and they said I, they really wanted to follow Jesus. They wanted to be a Christian. They felt like God was drawing them in and that God was kind of had something big planned for them, but they knew that if they became a Christian, he said, my friend's not going to understand. They're, they're going to hate if I do this, and I don't even know if they'll talk to me anymore. And he opted to run away from God, disobey this call that God was putting in his life because he couldn't bear the thought of it leading to pain in his life and in, in, in his relationships. Um, Abby and I have some friends from college. A guy that was on my floor married one of her roommates. And they got married and they decided that God was calling them to mission work. And so they did the, you know, the hard process of figuring out where to go and they decided God was calling them to Myanmar. Um, and they actually now serve in an area very close to where Lazarus Fish, one of our missionaries, serves. If you remember, if you've been here when Lazarus was here, um, they are actually in the very same area that Lazarus is in. And so they're in Myanmar, and right before they went, they found out they were pregnant. Wasn't exactly planned to take a newborn to Myanmar. You know, it's not exactly a resort location, okay? Myanmar is kind of um, coming out of first world nation status. And so they, ha- they take their new child over there for a commitment of at least three years to learn the language and the lay of the land and all that. And now, this has been several years now, they have had uh, two more, ch- well, they, they've had one more child in Myanmar, and she's pregnant with her third. And with both pregnancies that took place in Myanmar, not the nice, comfy one here in the States, she has had gigantic kidney stones that were so painful, like they go to the hospital and morphine doesn't help at all with the pain. And like I said, Myanmar's not um, the most medically advanced place. And so both times it got so bad, they had to take emergency flights to Bangkok, Thailand to see a urologist and go to the hospital, which again, we wouldn't know this, but Bangkok is actually a pretty modern place. But can you think of, hey, we're going to emergency lifelight you somewhere. Where? Bangkok. You're like, I'll just stay here. Like, you know, most of us would not want to go. Like, but to think of Bangkok, Thailand as the step up, that's a little scary to most of us. But, but, you know, even though being in Myanmar, that didn't cause the kidney stones, there had to be this moment of like, okay, God, when we were in the States, when we had hospitals on every, you know, every direction we could go, nothing. Perfect, no pregnancy. And now that we're here and there's not this medical stuff all around us, we are having these terrible troubles. My wife is, is in severe pain. We've got to take a flight to Thailand, another country where we don't speak the language and, and try to sort things out. I mean, it's just a mess. And you've got to wonder, okay, God, I'm obeying you. I'm doing exactly what you want me to do. Why is everything so hard? Why does this have to be so difficult? And I think for us as believers, for those of you that are believers, one of the things that we struggle to reconcile is when pain intersects with us being obedient to God. How do we come to terms with that? And part of it is that for most of us, we associate pain with only being a bad thing. You know, we got to take James in for his kindergarten 
you know, those things. I'm not going to say it out loud, but you know what they have to get when they go to kindergarten. And so um, we told him that the other day, and we, we said, those will help you and help you keep from being sick, and you have to get those in the arm to go to kindergarten. And he's like, isn't it going to hurt? I'm like, yeah, probably will. He's like, then I don't want him. I was like, oh, you don't want to go to kindergarten? No, I don't want to go to kindergarten. You know, it's like, okay, because he can't see pain as anything but bad. And I think we kind of grow up with these, this inability to see pain as anything but bad. And so we oftentimes even take it one step further, and we don't just see pain as bad. We see pain as punishment. And that's when we get really confused because we're trying to obey God, and pain comes, and we see it as punishment. So God, I'm doing what you want me to do, and now you're punishing me for it. And that just is so frustrating. But, we, but we've got to kind of step out of that mentality. We've got to step out and, and, and start seeing that pain is not just for punishment. And, the where, and where the story goes next, it blows the doors off of that idea that pain is only for punishment, that pain is only to harm us, that pain is only a bad thing. And maybe pain isn't punishment because what we're going to see here is God used all of this horrible, horrible pain to position Paul and Silas for what he had in store next. Let's go to verse 25. This is about midnight. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, you know, like you do after you get beaten and thrown in jail. And the other prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake, that the, uh, <coughs> a, a, such a violent earthquake, excuse me, that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. Because the way things worked there is when someone got put in jail for a crime, the magistrates said, somebody's going to get punished. And if they get out, then we're just going to take the punishment and put it on the guy who was responsible for keeping them in jail. And so he thinks, if I just fall on my sword and end it right now, that's going to be way more quick and way less painful than whatever they're going to do to me if this whole jail of prisoners has cleared out. But Paul shouted to him, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and asked them, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that in this time, a lot of times families live together. So this could be um, the jailer, his wife, their kids, their kids' spouses. There could be servants in there. I mean, this could be like 20, 30 people. You never know. So this is a lot of people probably. And at that hour, the jailer, at that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and he was completely filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. So what happened here is ultimately God used this horrible, painful situation to get Paul and Silas into a jail where they would meet a guy where he and his whole household were ready to hear the good news of Jesus, where this entire household could move off the path to hell and on the path to heaven. Through Paul and Silas enduring this miserable, painful experience, God saved who knows how many people that lived in his house. And so it, it goes totally against this idea that God was, you know, punishing Paul and Silas 
for doing something wrong. They didn't do anything wrong. They did exactly what God had told them to do. And if they hadn't ended up in that jail, this never would have happened. If they hadn't been beaten, they never would have been brought into this guy's house for him to care for them, wash their wounds, and hear the gospel. And so this blows the doors off of that idea that pain is only for punishment. And so sometimes I think we get so narrow-focused because pain tends to cloud our vision, and when pain comes, we just think, God, why are you doing this to me? I don't deserve this. I tried to obey. But look at this story. In this story, the pain was nothing, had nothing to do with what they deserved, and it had everything with what God wanted to accomplish. And so maybe, just maybe, God is good enough and big enough to use even something painful to lead you, direct you, grow you, whatever, and get you into the place where he wants to do amazing things through you. And that is a whole new level of understanding pain, and it is hard to get there. It is a big step up in maturity and trusting God to get to that place where you can say, even in the, the worst, okay, I'm, I'm still here and I'm still trusting. My favorite part of the story is, is the fact that Paul and Silas get tossed in jail after they'd been beaten severely, that's what it says, and what do they do? They start praying and singing to God. I love that. They're, they're praying and singing to God. I mean, you, I, you said all the other prisoners were listening. They were probably going, who are these loony tunes? Like, what is up with these guys? Why would, who is ever happy to be here? But, but Paul and Silas, it seems that in that moment, they're thinking, okay, God, we're going to praise you in the prison just as much as we praised you in the freedom. Because we know that you have asked us to be here. You told us to come this direction. We came here, and so we're going to go ahead and trust you, even in the pain that you've got a plan here. And I wonder, what would happen to us if we were willing, when the pain comes, to not just shake our fists at God and get mad and confused? And I, What are you doing to me here? If we were willing, if we were able to maybe open the Bible and read stories like this, or maybe a little bit about what happened to Elijah, because Elijah was faithful a lot and suffered a lot for being faithful. But we read these beautiful stories of somebody going through a mess and praising God in the mess. And we would just say, okay, God, I don't understand what's going on. It hurts. I'm lost. But I'm going to trust you in this. And I'm going to praise you in this. And I'm going I'm to trust you enough to say that maybe you've got something in this. Maybe you're big enough to do something in this. Maybe you're going to mature me in this so that I can be the person you need me to be. Or maybe you're going to put me in a position to do something for you that I never could have done any other way than if I had gone through the pain. And I, it scares me to think how often we've missed out on what God wanted us to do. Because when it got hard, we said, I don't like this, and we got out of what we were doing. Because we were kind of like, okay, God, I want to obey you. Oh, this hurts. Well, I don't want to obey you anymore. I want to go back to obeying you when it was easy. But sometimes God's plan is not easy. Sometimes it is difficult, and sometimes there are painful things in the way. But the best thing, the most amazing part about the story came after the pain. And we've got to endure, trust God, and press through that so that we can see what his plan is for us. Because when we obey, he has something for us. And the pain doesn't change the fact that God is there. And the pain doesn't change the fact that God is working. Our God is big enough, and we've got to trust that our God is big enough to work even in the hard stuff. And one of the greatest examples that we have of that is something we come back to every single week. 
in communion. And it's this idea that God used this horrible, horrible tragedy of the fact that Jesus, a guy who lived a perfectly obedient life, ended up going to a cross, being horribly beaten, enduring tremendous pain, and then he was executed on a Roman cross, a terrible, terrible way to die. It was a tragic ending. So his, his followers thought, they thought it was a horrible failure defeat the way Jesus died at the end of his life. And yet through the cross, God offered salvation to the whole world. Through that awful, ugly situation of the cross, that painful, brutal situation of the cross, God threw open the doors of heaven. And so we take communion every single week, and we're going to in just a few minutes. We do this every single week to remember that our God is a God who saves, but, but that our God is a God who can work through the painful things, the things that are, seem impossible, that seem like they are going to overcome. And I love the story of Gethsemane where Jesus prays, God, if you can, you know, let me go any other direction but to the cross, I'd like to take that, please. And then he says, but not as I will as you will. If this is what you have for me, then I'll go through the pain to accomplish your purpose. And the cross is evidence of the great faithfulness of Jesus who saw that pain had a purpose at times. And that sometimes we've got to walk into it and obey God so that God can accomplish the greatest things that he could ever possibly do. And so as we take communion in just a few minutes, if our servers want to go prepare, I just want you to keep that in mind. Whether you're in pain now, or whether it comes down the road, pain will come, and maybe it's not punishment. I mean, maybe you did do something. Okay, let me say this real quick, just before we're done. Maybe you did do something really dumb, and you're suffering for it. There are consequences to being dumb sometimes. And maybe when pain comes, you need to say, hey, wait a minute, did I do something foolish here? That's, that has a time. But there are times when we need to just realize there's pain, I didn't cause it, I didn't ask for it. I'm trying to obey God as much as I can. I'm really honestly trying to serve God, and yet the pain still came. And so, God, I'm just going to trust that you're either going to get me through or you're going to do something amazing through this mess. And so when you take this morning, as you're you know, waiting for the plates to get to you, just think for a minute. God is strong enough to work in the pain, and the greatest evidence we have of that is the salvation that came through Jesus' death on the cross.